0: us who you are uh, in your creation, that you are not a, a God of chaos, but a God of order and of beauty, and Lord, you know us well enough to know that we're prone to be broken and prone to do things the wrong way, and yet you love us. God, today as we have set aside a day to give honor and to celebrate dads, um, we, we do so. We, we, uh, we celebrate those who are engaged with their families and leading their families and loving their children well. And Lord, as we do that, we also acknowledge the pain and the brokenness that exists in the world. That not every father is as he should be. And there are so many different ways uh, that things can go wrong. And so on this day of celebration, we also grieve with those who grieve, with those whose dad was less than loving, who wasn't there. For those of us whose father's not with us anymore, we thank you that despite all of the brokenness in the world that we see and that we feel, we can look to you as our perfect father, our Heavenly Father. And so we now turn our attention to you in, this, in these moments, and we pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Would you give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Kid Nation, if you want to head back to the back with Uncle Ryan, we'll uh, get started in here this morning. Hey, Rye, will you turn up the the choir lights a smidge on your way out? appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. (laughs) <laughs> I forget that even though we only have one Ryan, we have two Ryes. There's Riley and Ryan, so I sometimes forget. <clears throat> Good morning, church. Good morning. Um, <laughs> glad to be together with you and uh, glad to be starting a a really brief series, but one I think is going to be really powerful um, just because of some of the content that we're we're diving into. And we've named it after this song that we we just watched together, we just listened to together, Is He Worthy? Um, which opens with uh, some things I think we can probably all relate to. A couple of questions. Do you feel that the world is broken? I'll see if I can do this without crying. I don't know why. <sighs> What's going on here? Okay. <clears throat> do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all of creation groaning? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. Like, there's days in my life that feel like, oh my gosh, like... Everything about me is groaning. The the, the the people that I love, the people that I'm trying to like love well and the people that I'm trying to serve, like they just keep working against me. Like, can't you see that I'm trying to feed you? Can you please just eat the food that I put in front of your mouth? Like just do it. Or or the people that um like my boss, like can't you see that I'm really just trying to help us make more money? Like I have a good idea here. Can you please stop like telling me that I'm wrong about this? I really think we could do better. Or um even our bodies feel like they groan and they work against us. Like, can't you see I'm, I'm trying to go to work so that you can have the food that you need to survive? Like, why are you making it so hard to get out of bed this morning? Everything is working against us. And I feel acutely the opening lines to that song. Is a new creation coming? That's a, a question that I think all of us wrestle with at some point. Um, As followers of Jesus, we look forward to the hope of of restoration of all things, but I really um, want to key in on these questions as we talk about this series together. We're going to be picking up in the book of Luke, in chapter 17. If you want to turn there, I'll give you a little bit of background information to catch you up. It's on page 1093, if you want to use those blue Bibles that are here in the room. Um, 1093, Luke chapter 17. And um, if we were going to be going through the book of Luke in chronological order you would have to pull up uh, the podcast or go back in the YouTube playlist to a sermon series that we called, Who Are the Lost? And in that series, we, we took a really simple question, Who Are the Lost?, um, so for church people, it would be like, all the lost are all the people outside the church, all the people that are not religious. And in that series, we discovered that actually Jesus points more often to religious people as being more lost than those who realize that, that they need a savior. Um, so we'd have to scro- uh, rewind way back uh, in our timeline together as a church to get to the ideas that are around here. But this book of Luke was written by um, somebody who I think you could probably... Uh, you'd say would identify with being a skeptic he was a doctor he was a man of science of his own day and so he wanted to put things in order he wanted he wanted reasons he wanted uh, the background he wanted why the ideas were connected he wanted to know why people did the way they or why people did the things they did why things worked the way they they worked and so as he begins to write down a biography of Jesus he says at the outset i'm not the first one to write anything about jesus but what but what i see missing in all the other biographies about jesus is is they're not in order. And so I want to write something down in order, um, in order to, um, so we've got something chronological, something that, that's, that's piecing together. And so that's what the book of Luke is. It's a biography of Jesus. Um, and there's really strong evidence, actually, that it was a document put together for a court case. So it was something that Luke was putting together, Dr. Luke was putting together as a defense for maybe Paul. What's the backstory of all of this stuff that's going on? What are these, these claims about who Jesus is? Luke wanted to write down something that would have legal standing in a court system. So that's where we come to the book of Luke. He's, he's a fascinating guy and actually wrote more words of what we call the New Testament than any other author. So he's, he's contributed a lot to our understanding. Um, and we're going to look in Luke chapter 17. And I'm going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read those first uh, six verses there. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention. And it would obey you. And we will pause there. On the surface, these verses probably don't feel like they have anything connected to anything that we've talked about so far this morning. And so I'm hoping to have started in one place, take a detour, and we'll get back to that place again, if you can follow with me. Is that cool? Cool. No? Sorry. Get out. <laughs> Just kidding, Sarah. You can stay. <clears throat> so... In the midst of Jesus' teaching, again, um teaching and trying to help the disciples to understand who who are the lost, like like it's not just that you believe in God, because even the demons believe in God, like there is a God and He's all powerful, like that. Like believing in God isn't enough, but it's, it's actually following Jesus is what matters. He says, Look, temptations to sin are sure to come. Do you feel the world is broken? Like temptations to sin are are sure to come. You're going to be tempted. Like, sin is is around every corner. Uh, There are other places in Scripture where it's described as uh, crouching at your door, waiting to break in. Like, sin is part of the world that we live in. Not the way that it was designed to be, but the way that we find it now. Temptations to sin are sure to come. And if you have a background similar to me, when you hear temptations to sin, you think, oh... We're going to talk about smoking cigarettes and, and, and drinking alcohol and, and cursing and, and hanging out with girls who do all that stuff. Like, that's not; Those are temptations to sin. You've got to steer clear of people like that, right? Um, but, but notice with me what Jesus actually correlates temptations to sin with. Um, And he does this in verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Temptation to sin is closely correlated to willingness to forgive somebody who has wronged you. When I think of temptations to sin, I think about like, all those morally bad categories of like, stuff to do. But Jesus says, no, like, withholding forgiveness is the first and foremost temptation that you are going to face over and over and over again in your life. I like to preach good news, unfortunately. Like, I have to tell you something that you already know. People are going to hurt you. People are going to say mean things to you. They're going to be inconsiderate of you. I'm sorry. And your temptation is going to be to hold a grudge. Your temptation is going to be to get even with him. Your temptation is going to be to say, get out of my life. And Jesus says, forgive. If you're going to follow me, you forgive. Forgive. He says, a little faith goes a long way because the disciples, when they hear this teaching, they say, "Uh, Jesus, you're going to have to meet us halfway on this one. Like, increase our faith. Like, my brother has sinned against me seven times today. And you say, if he comes to me and says that he repents, like, I'm supposed to forgive him? You're going to have to increase my faith. Like, I can't, I can't do that. Like, I don't have that kind of forgiving capacity in me. And Jesus says, Look, if you had enough, if you had faith of a mustard seed, like the smallest grain, bigger than a, uh, just slightly bigger than like a grain of um, that fancy sea salt, you've got to get in the crusher thing. You know what I'm talking about? That's, that's how small a mustard seed is. If you had that much faith, then anything that you wanted to happen could happen. Like, when I read, if you say that mulberry tree be planted into the sea and it would obey you, like, as a landscaper, that means something to me. Because there are a couple factors that make planting something in the sea actually kind of difficult, um, one being water. Like, if you want to plant something, you have to dig a hole. And I don't know if you've ever tried to, like, dig a hole underwater at the beach or something like that. Like, every time you move dirt out, like, if dirt comes back in, it's actually, it would be really difficult to plant a tree into the sea. I don't know if that's what Jesus meant. I don't think Jesus did a ton of landscaping, but like I'm thinking about the, the practicality of like planting a tree in the sea—a tree, nonetheless. Like you got to pick it up and move it, and this is before they had like bulldozers, so like they actually would have to lift it up. Um, yeah, just move that tree into the sea, and it, it would obey you. Like a little bit of faith goes a long way. Okay, so like I can ask God to like <laughs> make my hair grow back, right? Like, just a little bit of faith and I'll have a full head of hair again? Or I can, I can ask, I have a little bit of faith and God will make sure, like, I've got a couple extra zeros at the end of my bank account? Like, is that the kind of faith he's talking about? He's saying a little bit of faith goes a long way in forgiving your brother who sins against you over and over and over and over and over again. <clears throat> Reaching out for reconciliation isn't what comes naturally to us. And I realize that we live in a broken world, and so um, I'll, I'll say this, too. This is not, this is not a command to become uh, just a, a carpet that people can walk over. This is not a command that uh, if you're in an abusive situation that you must stay in that abusive situation. Um, our forgiveness does not short-circuit God's justice. Because you see, you see what he says at the beginning here. Temptations to sin are sure to come. It's going to happen. People are going to sin against you. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Look, I'm going to take care of it. I know it's, what they did to you was wrong. I am a just God, and it would be better for them if they'd have had a giant rock hung around their neck and thrown into the sea, not planted in the sea, but just chucked out there, than if they'd have caused you to sin, if they'd have done that wrong against you. I'm just. In the end, you will see I've taken care of it, but it's not your job to execute my justice. You forgive. I will be the just one. So I feel like I've kind of walked out into a peninsula, and and the, the stepping stones I have back are a couple of presuppositions that I carry real closely, but I don't know that I've ever really talked about very much, and they're things that I think will be helpful to us. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause where we're at in the text and explain some things that aren't in the text right now that will help you understand where I'm coming from as I'm trying to explain this text. Okay, There are two principles that all of creation goes by. All of creation operates under two principles. And, and humanity, in our fallen state, every single one of us um, fights against these two principles with our whole heart. Like, from the time that we're born, from the time that we're babies, we we fight against these two foundational principles. The rest of creation gets it. We're the only ones who are like, I don't know about that. <clears throat> the first principle is this. There is one God, and it's not me. There is one God, and it's not me. If if there is one God, and he has created all things and fashioned all of creation together, like then he's in control of what is happening. He's not. He's he's engaged in his creation, and he wants. There there is one God, and it's not me. Our our defaults uh, as we're born, we're wired with a sinful nature that says, um, "I am God, and, and you should serve me." Um, babies are real good at that. Like, give me what I need yesterday. <laughs> like, I needed it. I needed it two minutes ago. Why are you taking so long? <clears throat> so, foundational principle number one: there is one God and it's not me. Foundational principle number two. And I've got a pastor friend, well, not a pastor friend, I listen to his podcast all the time, so I feel like I know him really well, but we've actually never met. I've got a pastor friend who says all the time, if I could take an idea and put it in your head and make you believe something, this is the one idea I would make you believe. That God loves us and has our best interest at heart. He's, he, I don't know that I would say it this strongly, but he regularly says, if I could, if I could make you believe one thing, it would be this, that God loves us and has our best interests at heart. Those are two foundational principles that the rest of creation abides by, but we fight against all the time. There is one God and it's not me, and God loves us and has our best interests at heart. And there are times where we look at the circumstances of our lives and we say those two things appear to be either not true or they appear to be in conflict with one another. And particularly in times where somebody has sinned against us. So are we going to be... forgiving people are we going to follow jesus with a little bit of faith and are we going to continue to extend forgiveness to people who don't deserve it as people have as we are people who have received forgiveness that we did not deserve here's here's a question to chew on a bit are we responsible to god to hold god accountable to his standards of justice Are we we responsible? Is it our job to hold God accountable to his standards of justice? Like When we think that things are happening in the world that aren't just, we say, God, you obviously don't care about what's going on. Do we feel like it's our job to hold him accountable? Some days I do feel like that. Like, God, don't you see what's going on here? Do you hear what they said? Like, that's just wrong. But then I remember any standard of justice that I have, any, any, any idea of what is right and what is wrong, I got from him. His character is actually what defines right and wrong in all of creation. What is good is good because it is something that he would do. What is bad is bad because it's something that goes against his character. And so do we feel responsible, or are we responsible, to hold God accountable to his standards of justice? Because as we ask the question, is Jesus worthy to tell me how to live my life? The big idea is Jesus is worthy of shaping how we treat other people. Jesus is worthy of shaping how we treat other people. Up to seven times and in another passage of scripture as the apostle peter points out or as jesus points out to the apostle peter 70 times 7 times jesus goes a little bit farther he's got another example he wants to show to his disciples he's like look this sounds like a big deal to you like this sounds really heavy and really hard but but let me explain something to you would you look with me in verse 7 luke 17 verse 7 Jesus is speaking to his disciples again. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in the field, come in at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So, I'm going to pause there. Jesus has given this teaching about an extreme degree of forgiveness. His apostles or his disciples have said, "Increase our faith." He said, "Look, if you just had a little bit of faith, like this is this would be nothing." And then he tells this story. There's a story about a servant, and the servant is out working during the day. He's out in the field. He's plowing. He's taking care of the farm. He's doing the stuff. And then at the end of the day, he comes back to the main house. And, and which of you, if you had a servant that was out in the field working, would say, Hey, let's, why don't you sit down at the table and let's eat? Like, no, if you're a servant in the house, you come home out of the field, and then you serve the master well, you've got to dress right first. You've got to take a shower. You've got to be presentable. I mean, come on. You're going to be touching the silverware. So you've got to take a shower. You've got to get cleaned up. And then you can serve me. And after you've worked in the field and you've cleaned yourself and you've prepared the meal and you've served me the meal, then you also can eat after that because I'm the master and you're the servant. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Probably not. So here's, where, here's why I have already pointed out to you those, those two foundational principles that operate within creation. There is one God, and it's not me, and God loves us and has our best interests at heart. There's a couple ways I think we could hear Jesus' words here. We say, oh, Jesus is like, I am God. You will obey and serve me, and you will not question anything that I do. And I think he's got grounds to do that that is certainly like, within his, his uh, purview as the one God over all creation who's not me. Like God has the authority to say, I'm God, you're not. Suck it up, buttercup. Make it happen. This is what I expect from you. You better do it. If you don't, I'll zap you. Like, that's how God could work. But remember, there are two foundational principles to how the world operates. One is that there is one God and, and it's not me. And two is that he loves us and has our best interest at heart. So he says, "Look, if you're following me, I'm asking you to forgive." But forgiveness is basic, basic to the way of Jesus. Forgiveness is basic, basic to the. Like, if you are somebody who has been forgiven, what right do you have to withhold forgiveness from other people? Until they have put you on false trial until they have beaten you within inches of your life and crucified you, you really don't have a leg to stand on holding a grudge against somebody and complaining to Jesus about how much you've suffered. Forgiveness is basic, 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 basic. It's it's 101 of following Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name be honored in glory. You're, You're the one God in creation. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, give me this day my daily bread. Forgive us as we also have forgiven. And actually, I don't know if, you, if you've noticed this. I'll go back to the slide. I put... Uh, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, Amen. I put that as a separate line on this slide when we read it together because that's actually not in the verses. That's a traditional closing to this prayer, but the original closing to this prayer in Matthew chapter six. So in verse uh, fourteen in Matthew chapter six it says, "If you don't forgive the way that you have been forgiven, then you're not going to be forgiven." Like he goes off. Like, we do the Lord's Prayer, and then Jesus goes off about, hey, forgiveness is like the most basic thing that you could possibly do for people. Like, that's really the message that I came to to proclaim to you. I am forgiving you. There's no way you could pay me back for all that I have forgiven you. And so now I expect you, if you're going to follow me, to also be forgiving. It's basic. And you're not going to get an attaboy. Like, you're the servant. I'm the master. It's that's just how it is. But there's, like, I have, I, I'm saying it that way, but do you, like, I would like for us to defer to the words of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't put it quite as directly as I put it. Does he? He just tells the example. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Did he, does he give him an attaboy? Hey, thanks for doing your job. Thanks for showing up on time. Great work. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Having a a right perspective on creation and forgiveness in a vertical relationship between us and God helps us to live out an appropriate manner to other people. Jesus is worthy of shaping how we treat other people. we are unworthy servants we have only done what was our duty and there's there's two ways that i think there's one way that I'm tempted to approach this. Typically, when I come to a passage like this, like I get beat up. Like I'm a good old Southern Baptist. Like I'm like, oh man, hellfire and brimstone. Like I'm a terrible person. I'm not worthy to be forgiven. Like I'm, I'm really the scum of the earth. Like I can't believe I would hold a grudge against them for that one thing that they said. Like, what about my crucified Savior? And I get in this guilt trip. Am I worthy? No, I'm not worthy. Am I worthy? No, I'm not worthy. Every time I ask the question, "Am I worthy of God's love and forgiveness?" The answer is, is resoundingly no. But that's not the question, really, that he wants for us to ask. It's not, am I worthy of his forgiveness? Is he worthy of my life? Is he worthy of my service? Is he worthy of my love? Yeah, he is. And so the question becomes, are we fixated on ourselves or on Jesus? I have a tendency to be fixated on my own unworthiness instead of being fixated on his worthiness. Are we fixated on ourselves and our unworthiness? Or are we fixated on Jesus and his worthiness? Because Jesus is worthy of shaping how we treat other people. And then something happens. They they get on the road and they start traveling together. And something happens on the road that I think just completely illustrates the point that he's making here. We'll just touch on this real briefly. Look with me in Luke chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. So as they were leaving town, or as they were going through uh, on their way to Jerusalem, um, uh, he's going into this village, and there's ten lepers, ten people with skin diseases. Now, their medical system was such that if you had a skin disease that appeared to be uh, contagious, they just kind of put you outside of the camp. So you weren't actually allowed to go into the city. You were separated until until it looked like your skin was healed enough. And then the person who was qualified to bring you back into the community to let you come back in was actually the priest. The priest had to, you had to go and cleanse yourself. You had to take a bath because baths were ritual back then. Um, and then the priest would declare you clean, and then you could rejoin the community. But uh, you're isolated from your family, you're isolated from your friends. As anybody comes near you, you have to tell them, Hey, I'm unclean, Like I've got this skin disease. And like I'm super thankful that, that some of this stuff doesn't work today, because when I get poison ivy, like I am unclean. It is super gross. And if I had to stop working every time I got poison ivy, like I'd never get anything done. So I'm thankful that some of these things aren't the way that we do things anymore. But he's walking into town. These ten guys are like, hey, have mercy on us, Jesus. And he says, hey, go show yourself to the priest. Usually, you don't go to the priest unless your skin already looks better. They're still diseased, and he says, hey, go show yourselves to the priest. And they're like, okay. But as they turn, and as they're walking away, as they are on their way to the priest, their skin is healed on the way. And so ten of them are walking, and they're like, oh my gosh, look at that. The stuff's going away. I can't believe it. They go, and they show themselves to the priest. They take a bath. They get cleansed. They get to go back. But as they're walking, ten of them, ten guys, the whole group, The the cultural idea is like, oh my gosh, can you believe what's happening to me? And there is one guy who says, oh my gosh, he did it. There's one guy who takes his attention off of himself for just enough time to realize, like, it wasn't me who cleansed myself. All I did was turn around and walk the other direction, but it wasn't me. It was him. I have to go back, and I have to thank him. He doesn't get fixated on the, I am unworthy. He looks back and says, he is worthy of praise. I'm going to give glory and honor to God. And then Jesus gives a little bit of the backstory. That guy actually isn't from around these parts. Not only is he not from around these parts, like, he's from the bad side of town. Not only is he from the bad side of town, he's from the bad. Side of town with a bad family you know all those inbreds like all those people like he's from that group that's the guy that's the guy who looks and says like I he is worthy he's the one who comes back and says thank you and he says hey rise and go on your way go, go finish the thing go take the bath go be seen by the priest your faith has made you well faith like a mustard seed Gratitude is the appropriate response of a healing encounter with Jesus. And how we view our worthiness of grace shapes our response to receiving it. Um, There might have been some guys in that group of 10 who said, man, I've suffered with this disease long enough. Like, it's about time God got around to healing me. It's about time. I deserve some blessings in my life. How we view our worthiness of grace shapes our response to receiving it. If there is one God, and it's not me, and God loves us and has our best interests at heart, then when he extends his grace to me, an unworthy servant, I, I don't turn my attention on myself, I turn it back on him. You are worthy of my praise, you're worthy of my life, you're worthy of my love and my affection, you're worthy of shaping how I treat other people, even when they wrong me. will we live generously out of gratitude to Jesus? Acknowledging that every good gift that we have comes from God the Father, will we live generously out of gratitude to Jesus? Because Jesus is worthy of shaping how we treat other people. Will you pray with me? God, there's, I said a lot of words, and I just ask that your Spirit would clear out all of the the muck, anything that's that's my opinion or anything that's that's unclear. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see clearly your grace and your goodness, your power and your majesty as Creator of all things. But God, your kindness and your love, that you would be concerned. To bring justice to the people who wrong us, that you would be concerned about what unforgiveness can do in our own hearts towards other people, that you would deliver us from the eating and gnawing of unforgiveness and bitterness towards other people by asking us to forgive. We can't do it alone. God, increase our faith. Empower us with your spirit so that we can follow you. The perfect example. You're good to us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.